chapter 20, the first 21 verses. Hear the word of God. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant or his ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Tonight we are looking at Moses, the covenant of law. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you have given us a right path, a direction for our lives, that we are not left to wander by ourselves, but we can have hope that we are moving in the right direction because of the light of your law. Give to us an understanding as to how we are to understand that law in our own lives and grant to us grace to live according to all its precepts. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. Did you notice what you were singing this evening? Most perfect is the law of God, restoring those that stray. See what the law of God does? It restores those who stray. 
His testimony is most sure, proclaiming wisdom's way. If you want wisdom about life, you go to the law of God. The precepts of the Lord are right. With joy they fill the heart. Is that the way the law of God strikes you? The fact that God has given a law is something that gives joy to you. The Lord's commandments are all pure and clearest light impart. Without the law of God, you're stumbling around in darkness. The fear of God is undefiled and ever shall endure. The statutes of the Lord are truth and righteousness most pure. If you really want to know what the world is really like and how you are to live in this world, it comes through the law of God. They, that is, the laws of God, warn from ways of wickedness, displeasing to the Lord. They keep you from going in paths that are wrong. And in the keeping of his word, there is a great reward. Don't you know that if you keep the law of God, you're going to be rewarded, not only in this life, but in that which is to come. Oh, how love I thy law. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. And if you can see that, sing those words. Oh, how love I thy law with verve and gusto, then you don't have any problem with the law of God. But there are so many these days that have trouble with the whole concept of a law. They have trouble with the idea that God has a standard that he demands that we keep, and that that law is embedded and embodied in the ten words that he gave on Mount Sinai. Let's look at the law of God as we're considering now the theological significance of that law, the theological significance of the Mosaic Covenant. And we had said last week that the idea of covenant is larger than the concept of law. The law is the means to bring us into that perfect relationship of the interpersonal relationship between God and ourselves. But that law also must be understood as arising out of the very nature of God itself. It's not that God just arbitrarily said, you shall not make any idols. It, because, it was because he was of a basically spiritual nature and has not a body like men that he commanded that no idols were to be made. All of the commandments of God arise out of the essence of his nature as God and therefore they are unchanging. So you shouldn't fool yourself into thinking that you can somehow get into a relationship with God and be in a right relationship with him without understanding something of his law for it is his essence that is manifested in the law that he gives. Now we talked also a little about the distinctiveness of the Mosaic Covenant. As we consider the history of the covenants of the Old Testament, what is distinctive about the Mosaic Covenant? We had seen in Noah the covenant of preservation in which God committed himself to preserve the earth. In Abraham the covenant of promise in which God says, I promise unto death. If it's necessary, I will have my flesh, as it were, says Almighty God, torn apart so that you can possess the promises that are given to you. Now, what is distinctive about the Mosaic Covenant? Well, it is an externalized summation of the will of God. In those ten words, 
You have a summation of all that God requires of you. It is a beautiful picture, an externalized summation of the will of God. But it does have that externalized nature. It is written on cold tablets of stone. And along with it are all the ordinances that are associated with the Mosaic covenant of law. The giving of sacrifices, the requirement of the celebration of certain festivals, and all of those things that are types and shadows of the Old Testament form. So here we have an externalized summation of the will of God. And we hope that as we move along in the history of the covenants, we see that that law, that Torah, the same law ultimately is going to be written in the hearts. This is the new covenant, says Jeremiah. My law I shall write in their hearts. Now it's not that God was not writing his law in the hearts of the people in Moses' day, for there are places in Deuteronomy that refer to God's writing his law on the hearts of his people. But it's a difference of emphasis because Israel was in the concept of being taught by external modes, by shadows and forms and types. So there is that externalized form of the law written on the cold, hard tablets of stone. But that same law, that same summation of the ten words, by the grace of God, in those in whom there was faith, were having, they were having that law also, even in Moses' day, written on their hearts. But now we have the full emphasis of the law written on the hearts. Now, it is important as we consider this covenant of law to realize that the covenant of law is not to be confused with a covenant of works. The covenant of law is not to be confused with a covenant of works. As you think of the history of redemption, as you think of the unfolding of God's purposes in history, you must not think that we moved or that history moved from the time of Abraham in which you have a covenant of grace and promise to the time of Moses where you have a time of law and salvation by works. Well, that's what a covenant of works is. What is a covenant of works? A covenant of works is a covenant in which God binds himself to men in, in a context in which there is no provision for blessing in the event of disobedience. Under a covenant of works, if a person broke the law of God, there was no provision for blessing for him. That's what you have, as a matter of fact, at the beginning of human history. When Adam was created, he was perfect and sinless. And God said to him, you are to keep my law. And at the heart and core of that law was the law forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now in that original covenant, that was the covenant of works. In that covenant, there was no provision for blessing in the event of violation. God didn't say to Adam, don't eat of that tree, but if you go ahead and eat, don't worry about it. We'll figure out something. We'll work out a way so you can get the blessings even if you disobey. No, it wasn't there. God graciously did make a new covenant with Adam to give him blessing despite the, part, the fact that he had disobeyed. But that came after his disobedience. 
And there was no provision for blessing of Adam in the event of his disobedience in the original covenant of works. Now sometimes people read the Mosaic covenant as though it were a covenant of works. They read it as though it were laying down of a law so that if a person broke that law, there, were no, there was no provision of blessing whatsoever. Well, if you consider the historical context of the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant, you can see that that is not a proper understanding of that covenant. Consider the historical setting. We read Exodus chapter 20, and what does verse 1 say? I am the Lord your God who already has brought you out of the land of Egypt. I already have brought you out of the house of bondage. I already have had the blood of the Passover lamb shed to deliver you from the judgment of death because of your sin. In other words, the Mosaic Covenant was set in a context in which blessing was being given to God's people even though they were a disobedient people. God's blessing was upon, upon Israel by his redeeming them out of Egypt. So it is not this Mosaic covenant is not a covenant of works. It is not a circumstance in which God says, there will be no blessing on you in the event of your disobedience. He does indeed lay down the law. They're not the ten suggestions that he gives. They are the ten commandments. And he says, this is the way you're supposed to live. And you can spend your whole life just understanding what those ten commandments are and how they apply to your life. But he doesn't say in this absolute terminology of a covenant of works, if you violate any of these commandments, there will be no way of blessing. For he already had blessed them. He already had delivered them. And what you have in the establishment of the ten words is, is a sign of hope. That God, as a matter of fact, had brought them out of the bondage of Egypt. He had delivered them from the curse of judgment. And now there was hope that they would have the power to live according to the law of God. That God would enable them by his spirits working in them to keep his law and thus receive even greater blessing. Now you can see that the Mosaic was not, covenant was not a covenant of works also in view of the sacrificial system. At the very heart and core of the Mosaic covenant, was provision for forgiveness if someone did violate one of the commandments. He could bring his sacrifice and offer it. And in the bringing of the sacrifice, there could be a reconciliation between God and the sinner so that the sinner could receive the blessing of God even though he had violated the commandments of God. Now that wasn't to encourage disobedience. And there were many hedges set, even as there are in the New Covenant, many hedges set that would discourage you from disobeying the law of God willy-nilly, thinking, oh, well, I can get forgiveness. Well, you try that a few times, and, and you find just as a disobedient child who's had a good firm spanking from his parents, that really didn't get me what I wanted, did it? So in the disobedience of the law of God, there is not the kind of blessing that you might expect. God does provide a way of reconciliation, a way of blessing despite disobedience. But it is not 
in order to encourage us to disobey. So that this covenant is not a covenant of works. Never look at the keeping of the Ten Commandments as a way of salvation for you. It never was intended that way. The covenant of law is to be understood as something that is complementary to the covenant of promise. There is a theology that says that Israel was very rash when it accepted the Mosaic covenant of law. There is a theology that says that Israel should not have so rashly accepted the provisions of the Mosaic covenant of law, but they should have humbly pled for a longer experience of grace. It is said in this theology that at Sinai, Israel exchanged grace for law. Is that what happened? No, that is not what happened at Sinai. That is not what happened. There was not an exchange of grace for law. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Joy comes into my life because of the law of God. Light comes into my life because of the law of God. Many blessings come into my life because of the law of God. And if you put yourself at the foot of Sinai, and felt that mountain begin to tremble like this and saw the fire coming up out of the top of the mountain and the smoke and you heard this voice coming like, like peals of thunder and the voice of a trumpet and God said, you shall do these things, you would have probably said, yes, Lord, all that you command we shall do, which is exactly what Israel did. Now, was Israel rash when they made that pledge and commitment? All that you have commanded us, we shall do? Well, that's, you know, not very far at all from the pledge that each of you make when you become a member of this church. You pledge yourself to turn from sin and by the grace of the Holy Spirit to walk in the law of God, to keep his commandments, to live a life that is appropriate to a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, Israel was not doing anything rash at that point. They were doing what God required of them to do. And they were at that point embracing the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ as it was manifested in the law. So as you think of the law, you must not think of law as disannulling promise. It isn't that Israel was in this great condition until they came to Sinai. And then the promise stopped and a period of law started. Sometimes the idea is given that under Abraham there was unconditional promise given to Israel. And then suddenly under the Mosaic Covenant they get this bondage of law that keeps them away from the blessings of God. But that's not the picture at all that you get in the scriptures as far as unconditional promise you can look in Genesis chapter 17 and see very clearly that there wasn't something called unconditional promise with respect to Abraham. Genesis 17 verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. 
That's what God expected of Abraham. Walk before me and be blameless. It is not that you have a contrast here in the process of the revelation of God between unconditional promise and conditional law. It is that in both covenants you have promise and condition, but because it is the covenant of grace, you have God giving assurance that the conditions of blessing shall be fulfilled. You get the distinction? It's not between promise unconditionally given and law conditionally giving the blessings, but it is that in both covenants you have promise and law, you have promise and requirement, but because both of these the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with Moses are under the covenant of grace, you have God's assurance given to us that those conditions necessary for blessing in your life shall be fulfilled by his grace. How shall the conditions be fulfilled? Well, on the one hand, Christ will keep the law for you. Christ will suffer the punishment of the law for you. And Christ will keep the law in you. Christ will enable you more and more to live a life that is pleasing to God. And ultimately, when you're glorified, God shall give you that perfectly purified heart so that every instinct of yours shall be to keep the law of God. And every condition necessary for the full blessing of God shall be met in your life if you are in the covenant of grace. So law did not disannul promise. One theology says that the Abrahamic covenant was, and this is the way the, the little phrase reads, the Abrahamic covenant was wholly unconditional. All Israel had to do was to stay in the land. What's going on here? Isn't that a condition? Wholly unconditional. All they had to do was to stay in the land. One sentence following immediately after the other. No, all the covenants of God because of the nature of God because his nature does not change the law of God is always there it's just that the grace of God is going to make a way for his people to keep that law now furthermore law did not interrupt promise it's not that you have promise for a while and then a hardened of law in which salvation and blessing in a new kind of way is dependent upon obedience and then promise again in the, Abraham, in the Davidic covenant, a new unconditional promise era? No, you have a consistency throughout. But here you do have a further manifestation and understanding of what the will of God is for his people. Abraham didn't have the ten words so clearly spelling out what God wanted him to do with his life. He had the testimony of his conscience. He had some traditions passed on from the fathers, but he didn't have that perfect summation of the law that was provided in the Mosaic Covenant. Neither did law parallel promise. This is a suggestion that some give in understanding the relation of the Abrahamic Covenant to the Mosaic Covenant, that there were actually two tracks here and the Israelites could choose either one or the other. They could either choose the way of promise or they could choose the way of law. And if they made the mistake and chose the way of law, 
then they were stuck with all sorts of obligations and responsibilities. And the smart one in, a, in Moses' day, some have suggested, would have chosen instead the way of promise and thereby escape the obligations of the law. So how are we to understand then the place of the covenant of law in redemptive history? How are we to understand? And we should see that the covenant of law is related organically, it's related progressively, and it also consummates ultimately in the new covenant. Here is the place of the covenant of law in redemptive history. First of all, notice, and we'll just cover this point tonight, that the covenant of law is related organically to the totality of the unfolding of redemptive history. You can see here is the law, the ten words, and here is the history of the beginning of God's dealings with his people and redemption all the way back to Adam. There was a, an obligation laid upon Adam. Adam was required to till the ground. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. He had this obligation laid upon him. It was just as much a violation of the law of God for Adam to kill or his son Cain to kill his brother as it was in the days of Moses. So that law was present then. The obligation to keep the law was present then. In the days of Noah, obligation was laid upon Noah and the people of his day. If God was going to preserve the earth, then man had to keep his obligation to see that iniquity were restrained. The one who violated the law of God by murdering some other man had to be put to death. And that was a part of the requirement of the covenant with Noah. And then with respect to the covenant of David, you can see also there that the law continues to have significance. It has been suggested that the covenant of David is completely different than the covenant with Moses, that you have an unconditionally promised covenant, unconditional promised covenant in the Abrahamic covenant. You have an unconditional promised covenant. It is suggested with respect to the Davidic covenant. But with respect to the Mosaic covenant, you have this bondage of the law, which is of a wholly different nature. But look at 1 Kings chapter 2 and see how David himself viewed his own covenant relationship with God. 1 Kings chapter 2, as you consider the role of law in the Davidic covenant. This is David's deathbed charge to Solomon. When the time grew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon his son. I am about to go the way of all the earth, he said, so be strong. Show yourself a man and observe what the Lord requires. Walk in his ways, keep his decrees and commands, his laws and statutes as written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and so that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, 
then you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. An unconditional covenant? That's not the way David saw it. He saw the Mosaic laws and the keeping of those laws as essential to the blessings that would come through the permanent establishment of his descendant upon his throne. How could that happen? How could it occur? We know that all men are sinners, but we know that Christ, the son of David, ultimately came and he kept the law of God perfectly for us. And so he is seated on David's throne at the right hand of the Father, reigning eternally. And part of his reigning is that he is pouring out his Holy Spirit upon all his people, causing them to be born again, giving to them a new heart, so they also will desire to keep the law of God, so that they also will be enabled by the grace of God to live according to his commandments. And what about the new covenant? And that's sometimes the biggest stumper, because we seem to have some scriptures in the New Testament that seem to say that there's something, some way in which the law is no longer binding for the Christian. Listen and see some of what, how some of these passages strike you. This is Romans chapter 6 verse 14. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Romans chapter 7 verse 6 but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Sounds clear enough, doesn't it? We have been released from the law. And again, Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 25, but before faith came, we were kept under the law, being shut up to the faith that was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Isn't Paul saying we are not under law because we are no longer under the tutor? Well, that's one side of the witness of the New Testament with respect to the new covenant. But listen, on the other hand, this is Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and following. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Not until the end of time will there be an end of the law. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And here Jesus is not just talking about his own law that he is propounding, for he began by saying, the law of the prophets, speaking of the Old Testament, I did not come to abolish. Again, Paul himself says in Romans chapter 3, verse 31, do we then nullify the law through faith? God forbid. On the contrary, we establish the law by faith. Now just a minute, Paul, you're confusing us. I can understand why Peter says that you wrote some things hard to be understood. 
On the one hand, you say we're free from the law and we're delivered from the law. And on the other hand, you say, no, by faith we establish the law. What's going on here? In Romans chapter 7 again, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Well, you might say, yes, it's holy, righteous, and good, but it's not for me. Oh, no. Holiness, righteousness, goodness. That's the very purpose for which Christ has redeemed you, that you might live in holiness, righteousness, and goodness. How then is a Christian to understand his relationship to the law? Well, one answer to this seemingly complex question, is the Christian under the law, is found by noting the various ways in which this word law is used in the New Testament. Look at Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 3, and you can see just the varied ways in which this word law is used in just two chapters by the Apostle Paul. Notice Romans 2.21, the Apostle says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? That's the Eighth Commandment. You who say that the people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? That's the fourth commandment. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? That's the second commandment. You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? How is he using the ten, this word law here? I just gave it away. How is he using the word law? He's using it to refer to the Ten Commandments, right? Now look over at chapter 3. And look at verse 21, beginning at the middle of the verse, where he says, Made known to which the law and the prophets testify. How is, is he using the word law there? Well, that is referring to the Pentateuch, the law and the prophets, the very same word. Now look at the first part of verse 21. Now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known. How is he using law there? He's using law in a more complex way. He's using law in terms of the power of man to keep the law of God by himself. Apart from personal law keeping is what he means there. And look at verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what law? Now, how does your version read there? It might read principle there rather than law. So, you can see that even in these two chapters, there are at least four different ways by which the apostle uses the word law. And when he says, you are not under law, but under grace, you have to say, well, now, what does he mean by law? And you can say right away, he doesn't mean you are not under the Ten Commandments. He doesn't mean you're free from keeping the moral law of God. We're never free from that obligation. He doesn't mean you're free from the Pentateuch. Think of the tremendous revelation that comes to us from the first five books of the Bible. 
He doesn't mean you're free from any principles whatsoever in the world. He probably means when he says you're not under law, you're not under the necessity of personal law-keeping as a way of your justification before God. You are justified by faith, that is, by faith in Christ's keeping of the law for you. Now, that's just one way to see something of the release of our obligation from the law. Not that we are altogether free from our responsibility to keep the law of God, but that we are free from keeping the law as our way of justification. Are you under the law of God? Yes, you are. You're under the law of God. You're under the Ten Commandments. The fullest state of your blessing is going to come as you keep the law of God. You're going to be chastened by the Lord. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens if you violate the law of God. And ultimately, the word of God teaches that you are going to be judged by the law of God. Every man shall be judged according to the works that he has done in the flesh, whether it be good or evil. And the standard by which you are going to be judged, that standard of perfection, is the law of God. And yet we can say, we can sing with gusto, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. In the law there is light. In the law there is joy. In the law there is wisdom. In the law there is life. Because Christ has kept the law for you, Christ is keeping the law in you. Christ will perfect the law for you as you ultimately stand in heaven, perfected by his grace that works law into your hearts. Let us close in prayer. Our gracious Father, we thank you and praise you that you have given us light and understanding. And we acknowledge the limitations of our understanding of your word and would ask that you will continue to give us greater appreciation of all aspects of your word. But Lord, we pray that you will, by your spirit, write your law in our hearts, that naturally we will want to do the things that are right, that you will deliver us from that depravity and slavery to sin that has marked our lives so, mar so much in the past, and that you will give us a new lease on life, a new concept of the freedom that is ours, not only from the condemnation of the law, but freedom to keep your law. Bless your people now with your grace. And as they go through their daily work in the week to come, let them say with all their hearts, Oh, how love I thy law. For we ask in Christ's name, Amen. Let us stand for the benediction.